Do you ever ever sense when you're reading a passage of Scripture that you've read it before? I think when we get to the middle part of this section that we'll see some definite similarities to something we've already looked at in the book of Acts, and yet we'll notice some differences as well. Uh, the title of the sermon, Gods and Men versus God, is the idea that there is an opposition by those who are idolaters, and there is an opposition by those who were the Jews, and yet their most intense efforts were not able to interrupt God's work in the spread of the gospel. And that certainly fits with what we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Acts 1.8, Jesus said through the Holy Spirit that uh, He will come upon you and that you'll be witnesses starting in Jerusalem and spreading out through the known world. And we certainly see the advance of the gospel in that way. And on this first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas continue on, we see that even more taking place. And so we saw uh, the middle part of the chapter. Let me start by reading you the first seven verses sort of to give you the background or the setting. Uh, the response that we see continued from last week. It says in chapter 14, verse 1, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Laconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. We see in this section the three responses that I think we see throughout the book of Acts to the gospel message. The first one is acceptance. The second one is opposition, often intense opposition. And then the third one is a hesitation. Sometimes it's phrased as, we'll hear you about these things again. Sometimes it's phrased as, we can't make up our minds whether what you're saying is true. That's what we see here. Verse 4, some were divided, some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. There's this division, this question about the response to the gospel. We also see a continuation of that response from uh, the end of chapter 13. Originally, the people wanted to hear more in chapter 13, verses 42 and 43. And then the Jews rejected. And then Paul says, I'm turning to the Gentiles. And they rejoiced and saw God's work among them. Which raises the question in chapter 14 and verse 1, why did Paul go to the synagogue of the Jews? Because he said in verse 46 of chapter 13, we are turning to the Gentiles. I think that there are a couple of explanations. The one explanation that's given which is that Paul couldn't make up his mind. I don't think we would understand that as being a correct possibility. So how then are we to understand the gospel is no longer going to the Jews, Paul goes into the synagogue. I think the point is that by and large, the gospel continues to be rejected by the Jews. That being said, you see in passages like Romans 9, Paul's burden for the people of Israel that they would be saved and so he never loses that burden. And so every time he goes into a city, he takes opportunity to go into the synagogue and preach the gospel, even if it's just once, to give them an opportunity to hear the gospel, knowing that in all likelihood they're going to reject it, and knowing that um, he's going to face opposition, and that the gospel is primarily being accepted by the Gentiles. That being said, verse 1 says, "...a large number believe both of Jews and of Greeks." So this raises the question for us. 
if we faced opposition in the past from a specific person or a specific type of person or whatever else, sometimes that for us is a cue to say, I'm not going to witness to anybody like this ever again. And I think that this is an important reminder to say that God is the one who brings about salvation. Remember chapter 13, verse 48. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God is the one who is working behind the scenes to make the gospel message effective in the lives of those to whom we give it. And so our job is to be responsible in giving it. Jesus also said, don't cast pearls before swine. In other words, if there is continued rejection, there comes a point at which it is no longer effective to give the gospel message to a particular group of people. And I think that the, the way that that works is, just practically speaking, tied to geography. It's tied to uh, other opportunities that are available. It's tied to the specific task that God has given us. Paul was given the task as an apostle to witness of Christ and his resurrection to everyone. God has not necessarily called each one of us to go and start churches in new places where the gospel has not yet been preached. But, at the very least, we each have a responsibility to share the gospel with those around us. Sometimes, who is around us changes when we move, when we change jobs, when circumstances of life change. And so I think we have to look at this as the fact that we have brief windows, brief opportunities sometimes to witness to specific people most effectively. Which doesn't mean we'll ha we won't have a chance to talk to them later down the road, but it does mean that we need to make the most of those opportunities. Maybe you have a short-term job assignment. Maybe you're sitting next to someone while you're traveling to another place on a plane or a bus or something like that. Take the opportunity to minister to the gospel of that person, recognizing your opportunity may be brief. If you have someone who continues to reject the gospel, particularly when it comes to someone who's a family member, I think that there is perhaps a greater responsibility that we have to those who we have ongoing relationships with as distinguished from those just generally out in the world at large. But God is the one who works. We must simply be faithful, and God will give results. We see a pattern here at the beginning of this chapter that we'll see again repeated throughout the book that oftentimes the Jews will come in even from other places with a goal of stirring up the people such that they're trying to kill Paul and Barnabas or later Paul and Silas. And so there is just going to be this ongoing pattern. We see at the end of this section that in verse 6 they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lystra and Derby and the surrounding region, and there they continue to preach the gospel. We see in verse 3, they spent a long time speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. So what do we see? When there is opposition to the gospel message, some people have looked at verse 3 and said that there is a historical inaccuracy because it says the Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made them bitter against the brethren, but they spent a long time speaking boldly. However, there is no need to see some sort of chronological error here. There's not an error of this happened first in verse 3 and then verse 2 happened. It's simply the fact that God's power was greater than the opposition. It says God was testifying to the word of his grace and God was granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. 
So God's power can overcome opposition. But we see from verses 5 to 6 that there is also a time and a place to recognize the nature of the opposition and a legitimate place of going to another place of ministry in this case. Uh, when I was in college, we had to do a case study, and the question was, if you were a missionary and you were in a church overseas and the government started persecuting that church and there was a threat to your life, the life of your family, the life of the people in the church, what would you do? And the answer is there's not one right answer. Someone who says, I believe that I should protect my wife and kids and sends them back home to the States but stays himself to lead the flock that he's ministering to, that would be a legitimate choice. Someone who says that we're all going to stay and trust that God will protect us, theoretically that is also a legitimate choice. That's something that there have been missionary families that have done that in the past. Someone that says we believe that we are going to leave for a time with the hope that we can return because we believe that God has worked in this congregation such that they are stable and ready to stand this particular test, there may be a place in which that is a particular choice as well. The point of what me saying that is to say, Paul and Barnabas's choice was to say, although God has power to preserve us, God has power to raise from the dead, all of these sorts of things, we are for the moment going to take the gospel to another place where we believe there is further opportunity. What do we see happening in that new place? We see in this new place almost, at least initially, an exact retelling of what we saw back in Acts chapter 3. Look what Luke repeats in the end of verse 8. A man had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. What does that remind us of in Acts chapter 3? Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every gate at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms. Why do you think Luke repeats it three times? I think he repeats it three times so that if he, doesn't, if he says it the first time and we miss it, that the second or third time we would say, wait a minute, we've heard this story before. And it was in Acts chapter 3. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him, Acts 3 and verse 4, but Peter says, Peter fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us, and he began to give him, the, him his attention. And Paul says, or, or this account that Luke describes, when Paul had seen that this man had faith to be made well, Paul says, stand upright, and he leaped up and began to walk. What are the differences? The difference seems to be, initially the man in Acts 3 is looking for money. Then they say, look at us. Then he still expects to receive money, but they, Paul, or Peter does the miracle and then there's this response of wonder and amazement with possible conversion. Here, Paul is preaching. The man is paying attention to what's being said. And it says at the end of verse 9, and had seen that he had faith to be made well. What, is, what does that look like? How did Paul know this man had faith to be made well? 
I think the bottom line would be that would be, have to be something that God made him aware of. Because I don't think that anyone can tell by looking, this person has faith to be healed, this person doesn't have faith to be healed. Obviously, this is twisted all sorts of ways in the present day, but we have to remember that there is no longer this same sort of apostolic office that there was in Paul's day. Because there are not eyewitnesses of Christ, and there are not those who are specifically called to proclaim the gospel in this way as apostles of Christ. And so I think what Paul saw in this man was something that God specifically enabled him to see. That being said, I think that we certainly should be watching out for people who are seemingly ready to respond to the truth of the gospel. How do you know that? What does that look like today? When they're listening intently, when maybe in the past they rejected those words, but now they're willing to hear them. When you say, I'll pray for you about this, and instead of mocking you, they say, thank you. There are signs that potentially we can see as God working in someone's heart and life. Now, if they do not end up confessing faith in Christ, it's possible that we may have misread those signs, but we should at least be watching out for them and seeing and praying fervently for God to work in that person's heart and life. This man is listening to Paul, and it says that Paul saw he had faith to be made well. I think this is connected and supposed to remind us of some of the accounts that we see in the Gospels as well. When Jesus is looking at people, and he'll say things like, Do you believe? And the response was, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus did the miracle that was expected or requested. Again, we see a repetition both of those sorts of miracles and the one that we saw in Acts 3. The man leaps up and begins to walk. Now here's where the accounts specifically start to branch out. What was the response of the Jews? Let's arrest these guys because they're attacking our authority. What's the response of these pagans? Verse 11. The gods are here right now. Verse 12, they call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, or uh, Jupiter and Mercury. Uh, this would be an understanding or an expectation that these were their gods come down among them. So when they saw this miracle, this man can now walk who couldn't walk, instead of immediately arresting uh, Paul and Barnabas, like Peter and John had been arrested by the Jews, the response is instead to exalt them. In the wrong way, but it's a favorable response. I think that Luke is highlighting the contrast in the responses between the Jews and the Gentiles. A wrong response, a misguided response, a pagan response, and nevertheless a positive response to what they see of God's work. Why did they call them by these specific names? Well, they called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. They said, this guy must be the messenger of the gods, so he is the messenger god. And then Barnabas was not speaking, and they say, okay, this guy is the one who's talking for the gods, then this guy must be the chief deity. And so that's their assessment of who Paul and Barnabas were. The priest of Zeus, verse 13 
whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. The gods are here. What's an appropriate response? Let's make a sacrifice to them. Let's honor them. Let's receive them with the best that we have. Why didn't Paul and Barnabas immediately put a stop to this? Well, if you look at verse 11, they raise their voice saying in the Lyconian language. So at first, they're talking among themselves in their own dialect, in their own language, and apparently Paul and Barnabas did not necessarily know what it was that they were saying, or it was sort of a murmuring in the crowd that they weren't able to distinguish. And so there, they've, they've been preaching, and now this miracle is taking place, and now there's this huge disturbance, and, and what's going on among the people? What's their response? Verse 14, When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you. So when they tore their clothes, this was a sign of grief, of anguish, of distress. It was supposed to be a signal to the people of, even if there is some measure of which there is a communication barrier here, stop! We're not gods. He says, we're men like you. Now, it's not a complete communication barrier because they had been understanding some of what Paul was saying. So whether it's that some of the people understood, whether it's, it's the, that Paul and Barnabas didn't understand all of the specifics of the Lyconian language, the text doesn't go into great detail about that. But the point is, they're able to communicate such that they were able to stop them because verse 18 says, even saying this with difficulty, they restrained the crowds. What's Paul's sermon here, though? We are men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted the nations to go their own ways and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So, the irony of the way that Paul starts out his sermon is their act of devotion was in fact a wrong response to God's power. Why, does, why do we say that? Because in verse 15 he says, you should turn from these vain things. That's not necessarily something that we're immediately comfortable with saying about someone else's fervent belief. That it's a vain thing, that it's an empty thing, that they should stop pursuing it. But if, in fact, we believe that God is who He says He is and that Jesus is the only way, then any other effort to reach God or to respond to God is a vain thing. And so that's important for us to remember that we should have confidence with saying carefully, considerately, wisely, but clearly, these are vain things. How do we know that Paul didn't say this in, a, in an antagonistic way? Because he says in verse 16, In the generations gone by, he permitted the nations to go their own ways, and he did not leave himself without witness, that he did good and gave you rain and satisfied your hearts. And so Paul starts into the message that I think he really finishes in Acts 17, which we'll get to a little bit later on, and that is, if you're going to witness to someone who has a pagan concept of God or gods, you have to start with basic truths. With the Jews, he didn't have to start with the question of, is there a God? He had to start with the question of, is Jesus the Messiah? They already believed that God was God. 
But here, these pagans have a wrong concept of God, and so Paul is backing up and saying, worship is good, but your worship is of the wrong thing. Believing in God is good, but you're believing in the wrong God. So what is God like? He's the one who made the earth, the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's not a God of the sky, but not of the land. He's not a God who goes in this place, but not in that place. He's the God of everything. And he says here, even with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. The impulse of these people is so strong that I think that his message is sort of cut short. But what, did he, what does he have opportunity to say before it's cut short? God has been patient with you. There is one God who made all. That God has been patient with you. How do they know that God has been patient? It says he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. This does not mean that God let them do whatever they wanted. This does not mean that God didn't care that all these nations were idolatrous. This means that, for example, in the land of Canaan, God let them go 400 years while the people of Israel were in the land of Egypt where they theoretically could have repented before the nation of Israel came back and conquered the land and, and wiped out many of the tribes that were there. God could punish in an instant immediately any sin that comes up, but God is patient and kind, particularly toward those who are sinning in ignorance. Now, their sin is still sin. It doesn't mean that it's okay. But it does mean, and I think Luke is highlighting this point as well, the Jews who knew better, who heard the truth and continued to reject it, were in at least in one sense more guilty than the Gentiles who hadn't really heard the truth in the same way. So Paul emphasizes, at least initially, there's one God, he's been patient with you. But he doesn't have opportunity to really finish this message because of this impulse of the crowds to offer the sacrifices. What then is the response of the Jews? Verse 19, they went over the crowds. They come from Antioch and Iconium. So they come from Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium, places where Paul and Barnabas have already been. They're so opposed to the message that Paul is bringing that they make this long journey. They stir up the crowds. And what's the result? They stone Paul and drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This seems as though the gospel message has failed. That the Jews could say, see, you shouldn't have taken it to those Gentiles. See what happened? Which, ironically, would be due to their own influence. Well, look at verse 20. While the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered into the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. When you read that, and then you read a passage like 2 Corinthians 1, when it says that we had the sentence of death within ourselves, but we trusted in God who raised the dead, does that have a little more significance for us? Now people argue whether Paul actually died here. At the very least, he was near death, and God gave him sufficient strength to rise up and walk, which is not something you typically do after you had been stoned. And when we say stoned, we think like pea gravel or river rock. We're talking like big, sharp chunks of rock that they would have 
often taken someone outside a city and put them down a hill and thrown down on top of them. So we're not talking about like minor wounds. At the very least, God rejuvenated him and gave him strength. Quite possibly, God restored life to him. Did the gospel fail? No. Because the efforts of the Jews, the opposition of the Gentiles, and the supposed strength of their false gods was not sufficient to defeat the message about the true God. The same God who, at the beginning in chapter 14, verse 3, granted that signs and wonders would be done by their hands, also granted that he would do signs and wonders to and in them, including this restoration of Paul. The next day, Paul goes away with Barnabas to Derby. Again, could God have continued to give them opportunity in Lystra? Yes. Was it the wisest thing for Paul to go back into the city where he had just been stoned? Probably not. And so he viewed his responsibility as continuing on this journey, preaching the gospel throughout this region. And so when the opposition got to a certain level in a particular city, he would move on to the next city and the next city and the next city, not running away, not in fear, not without believing that God could continue to work, but simply recognizing that God had appointed people to believe in each of these cities and he was going to be faithful in taking the message to all of them. Would there be a temptation, a strong temptation, to stop at this point? But look at verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city in Derby and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. So not only does he continue doing what God has called him to do in a new city, but he goes back to the city where they had tried to stone him to death, confident that God could protect him, back to Iconium, back to Antioch, the place where the Jews had come from and stirred up the crowds and led to his stoning. And what does he do there? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes we give up too easily. Sometimes we have opportunity to speak more emphatically into the lives of fellow Christians when we ourselves have gone through specific opposition. And Paul saw it as his task to continue to strengthen their souls, encourage them to continue in the faith, and remind them that this is not something unexpected, not something to fear, not something entirely to avoid, but something to recognize is a normal and natural part of life for the Christian. And we look at a verse like that and we say, I'm not sure if that's the sort of Christianity that I want. Because isn't Christianity that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I mean, at some level, yes. But that wonderful plan isn't easy. And that love doesn't mean no discipline, according to Hebrews 12. And the fact that God is the one who finally evaluates us doesn't mean that people won't make wrong assessments and oppose us along the way 
even if we are faithfully following God. We know that from First and Second Peter. So I think this raises a question for us. When we face the sort of opposition that Paul faced, coming almost to the point of death because of the intensity of that opposition, do we still believe that following God is worth it enough that we will continue to proclaim the gospel, that we will continue to encourage other people, or will we give up on following God and say that it's too hard? And that's a test for all of us, whatever it is that we're going through. Whether it be death, whether it be sickness, whether it be uh, conflicts in our families, whatever it is, these things are going to arise throughout our Christian lives and test our faith and cause us to ask ourselves, am I going to persevere in following after God? And if we do, it's because we believe that there is strength for our souls, that God's encouragement is enough to continue in the faith, and that even though we may go through many tribulations, we will arrive at the kingdom of God. And what Paul says is that that is worth it. This light affliction is not to be compared with the glories that will follow. We look at Paul's life and we say, Paul, why would you keep doing this? It's like he's smacking his head against a brick wall. You know they're going to do this. It's like you're reading a book or watching a movie and you're like, don't go there. You know what's going to happen. And he keeps doing it. Why? Because God had called him to do it because he was convinced that God had the power to make his message effective, and because he was focused on the end result, not on the temporary, immediate difficulty. That doesn't mean that the present difficulty isn't hard. When Paul lists off all the things that he went through, being shipwrecked, being beaten, being stoned, if you drew a picture of Paul... He would have had scars all over his body. He would have hurt when he got up in the morning. Why? Because he had gone through all these things. It doesn't mean that it's, it's easy. But I do think that this passage shows us that God can and does triumph over false gods and unbelieving men. Verse 13, or 23 says, When they appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting... They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. People get into arguments about verse 23, about whether this is a, a condemnation of congregational government, uh, to which I would simply say, if you look back at Acts 6, there's both a role for the leadership and for the congregation in the selection of the elders. I don't think we necessarily need to read Acts uh, the, of men doing things for the church. I don't think we need to read Acts 6 into here. I think the point is simply, as an apostle, God gave him authority to get these churches established to make sure leadership was in place. Honestly, this phrase does not necessarily say the specific mechanism by which that took place. It just says Paul made sure that the elders were appointed in that congregation. And we see that pattern uh, in other places as well, what Paul calls Titus and Timothy to do, for example. This is accompanied with prayer and fasting, and commending them to the Lord in whom they had believed, which I think, in fact, echoes the sending out of Paul and Barnabas themselves. It says in 
uh, chapter uh, 13 and verse 3, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them out, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went on their way. And so there is a, a parallel to Paul and Barnabas' own sending, their own commission, and in the same way these new leaders in the church were commended and committed to God. Then in verse 24, it says, They passed through Pisidia, came into Pamphylia. These are just different regions in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. Not back to the Antioch where the persecution had been, but rather back to the Antioch on the uh, eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea in Syria, uh, where the church had been established earlier in Acts 13 and before. What does it say in verse 27? When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. A couple of quick observations about these last few verses. It is good and proper for those who are sent out in the work to come back and make a report to the church that sent them out. That's why we have missionaries come in and present their work and hopefully bring encouragement about what God is doing. And along the lines of that encouragement, they reported all things that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, which included both the rejoicing of the Gentiles in 1348 and the triumph of the church in the face of persecution all throughout chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas saw all of those things together as God opening a door of faith unto the Gentiles. And I think that that's remarkable because, again, uh, sometimes we only think that we are succeeding as a church or as Christians if we only have a positive response to our work for God. But I think that they're reporting all the things that God had done for them, and they saw in this God working among the Gentiles despite the opposition, despite the persecution, despite the hardship that they were going through, and they were excited about what God was doing. And I think there's also a recognition that there is a need for rest after a time of intense persecution if there is that opportunity because it says in verse 28 they spent a long time with the disciples. Obviously so they could minister to them. I think there's probably also a degree of them being encouraged themselves. So as we look at a passage like this, we ask ourselves, what is the main point of this passage? And I think the main point of this passage that Luke is making is God can do the same work among the Gentiles that he did among the Jews. That the same gospel that Peter preached is the same gospel that Paul is preaching. That even though the response of the Jews was initially to reject and the response of the Gentiles was initially to accept, though in the wrong way, that in the end when the opposition came and Paul and, and Barnabas had to leave and they came back to the church, what were they able to report? even though we weren't able to stay there and continue the work in the way that we would have liked potentially from our perspective, God has established churches and those churches are growing and those churches are being faithful to God. They have leaders. They can move forward. The gospel work is being accomplished in this region. And so as you go throughout this week, I would remind you of this. God's power is greater than any opposition we might face. So we just need to do the things that he's called us to do. Specifically in this passage, it's proclamation of the gospel. 
In other passages, it's resisting temptation to be angry at someone in your family, to be greedy, because that's the pressure of the world on us, to want stuff and things and all those kinds of things. Whatever it is that we face, God's power can help us to overcome the opposition to proclaiming the gospel or the temptation to sin or the temptation just to sin by not doing the things He's called us to do. When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, love me above all other things, that's not something that we can do on our own. But God's strength is sufficient just like it was sufficient here. And so if we are faithful in and through the opposition that we face, what is the encouragement? Verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That God is at work among us, that that is our goal, that that's what we look forward to, and that the things that happen along the way are hard, they are difficult, and yet God is at work in the midst of them. And so will you continue to follow God faithfully, being confident that God is greater than the power of pagan gods or of sinful men? Let's pray. Lord, we see your power revealed in this passage. In some ways, it feels very similar to other things we've looked at in previous weeks. And so there's a tension uh, in my mind about not just sort of repeating the same message over and over, and yet you did repeat it in your word in slightly different ways and in ways that echo other examples of things that you did among your people and among other peoples earlier in the Bible. Um, Lord, we pray that just because we feel that this is something that we've heard before, that we would not think that we don't need to pay attention to it. Lord, our struggles tend not to be against specific people, although they sometimes are. It tends to be against the circumstances of life. Um, some of these other things that we face, various temptations, various discouragements. And yet even so... You are the same God who is at work in all those sorts of circumstances. And so we understand that the main focus of this passage is on the proclamation of the gospel and the strength that you give to do that work. But we recognize that your strength is available to help us in all the things that you've called us to do as your people. So we pray that you would bless us this week as we do those things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.